Does Canada really have a gun problem? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Noah Schwartz. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Noah Schwartz. Noah is Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of the Fraser Valley. His research focuses on advocacy groups, social movements, and firearms policy in Canada and the United States. His research interests include group politics and social movements, the politics of narrative and memory, the theories of the policy process, and firearms policy. Noah, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you on. So Noah, we base each episode on a question and go wherever the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today in the theme of the episode uh, that we chose is, does Canada really have a gun problem? And and really what I'd like to do is explore many facets of you know gun control and firearms and so on in Canada through that theme. So I'd like to start with some context setting uh, first, especially when we're talking about Canadian, Canada and firearms, and then we can go from there into some specifics. So one thing that I wanted to kind of use as a jump off point, if you will, is that, you know, a lot of the recent heat around guns and the gun control debate in Canada might have some believe that, like, you know, there's something out of control as far as the laws on the books that exist today. Or or in fact, some people who might not be educated on the topic might think it's almost like some sides are making sense. We have no laws and something needs to be done. Um, so I, I, as a context setting point, I sort of want to discuss the reality of gun control as it stands in Canada today. Like we can discuss current legislation and current political debates and where things might go. But, but what does current policy for firearms look like in Canada? Like we, we, we certainly can't just walk into a gun store and purchase a gun. So, so what's the regime look like here? Yeah, I think that's a really good place to start, especially since uh, we know that, you know, uh, all of Canada's major political parties kind of have an in, uh, an incentive to sensationalize the issue in the same way that that the media also has an incentive to sensationalize the issue. And a lot of Canadians don't know a huge amount uh, about firearms and gun policy. What they know is usually largely influenced by what they see in the American media or sort of reports on what's going on in the United States. Um, and so uh, I think, uh, you know, educating the public on the laws that we have in Canada, I think, is a strong place to start. Um, essentially, can, uh, firearms have been strictly regulated in Canada since about the 1970s. There's regulations that go back beyond that. Um, but uh, really, Canada got serious about it in the 70s. And our current firearms laws date back to about the 1990s. So 1991, and then the Firearms Act in 1995. Um, so this created uh, a number of, of important laws. So first of all, licensing laws. Uh, Canada is not like many states in the United States, uh, where all you need to do is be able to pass a background check to buy a gun. Uh, in Canada, we have a strict gun licensing system. There's 2.2 million licensed gun owners in Canada. Um, and what they have to do uh, to be able to purchase a gun uh, is to apply first for their possession and acquisition license. So this is called a PAL. Um, it involves passing a safety course. Uh, it's a two to three day course, depending on what kind of guns you want to be able to own. Um, it involves uh, both a written exam and a practical exam, and you have to score above 80% on both of those exams. Um, then you can go ahead and apply for your license after that. There's an automatic 28 day waiting period. So usually the process lasts anyway, anytime between uh, three months and six months, depending on sort of backlogs. 
Um, you have to, uh, with this application, uh, you have to provide a number of things. You have to provide character references from people who have known you for a certain amount of time who who will attest to your, you know, your good character. You have to provide uh, the consent of your spouse if you're married or in a long-term relationship. Or if you've had a breakup in the last two years, you have to provide the consent of your ex-partner. Um, you have to report any substance abuse issues, any mental health issues. And then once you get your license, um, you're subject to what's called continuous eligibility screening. So your name is sort of continuously run through this uh, database, the Canadian Police Information Center database, CPIC. Um, and if you your name pops up, um, let's say a warrant has been issued for you, you commit a crime, uh, the police know exactly where you live so they can come and get uh, your firearms. You also have to have a valid reason for applying for a gun license in Canada. Um, it's not like the United States where you can just sort of uh, buy a gun because you want one or because you want, uh, you know, for, for self-defense or one of those reasons. In Canada, the only valid reasons for owning firearms are hunting, sports or recreational shooting, and collecting. So there's pretty strict laws in place and parameters around gun ownership uh, in Canada as it stands. Right. And and I think you, you talked about the different uh, types of uh, guns and firearms as well in Canada. So like, a you know, uh, that, that essentially refers to the idea, if I understand you correctly and where you're going there, that, you know, there are different guns are classified a different way, for instance, as non-restricted and restricted, for example. And your license actually has tiers as well within that. So even just because you have a PAL doesn't mean you can own all kinds of guns as well in the market. That's correct. Yeah. So there is the RPAL, the Restricted Possession and Acquisition License. And uh, so that involves an additional course, an additional test, um, and that's to be able to own restricted firearms. So restricted firearms in Canada uh, tend to be handguns or, or certain uh, long guns that, that um, often for political reasons have been designated as, as restricted uh, firearms. Um, and for those, uh, there's also special rules around sort of where you can take that firearm. Um, so you're only allowed to take it to a, a licensed, a federally regulated shooting range. Um, it's not like a hunting rifle, which you can take off into the woods. Um, you're not allowed to shoot those firearms on your own property. A lot of people that live in rural areas uh, will do target shooting in their backyard if they've got, you know, a, a significant piece of land, if they're far away from a city. So you can't do that with restricted firearms uh, like handguns or uh, certain long guns. And and a lot of people, especially our friends down in the States, might, you know, find this sort of a, a strict regimenting, if you will, of what it means to be a gun owner in Canada, if if you are one, in fact, if one is, you know, the fact that, you know, you can't by default, as we said, and not every citizen can go and walk in and own a gun. And, and I really, I guess that comes down to the fact that there's no constitutional or Bill of Rights protection for gun ownership in Canada, just to clarify, right? Like at the end of the day, um, the way a lot of the politicians talk about, the way I've seen a lot of academics talk about it too, is anywhere from the idea that this is basically really based on social contract between firearms owners and the state. And, and, you know, some refer to it as just a straight up privilege. This is not a right in Canada, right? Yeah, no, I've, I've done research on, on both sides of the borders and talked to, to gun owners in the United States as well. And when I tell them about gun control in Canada, their mouths sort of drop right at that, the sort of substantial uh, gun control that we have on this side of the border. Um, there, you're correct in that there is no charter protection for gun ownership in Canada. Uh, and the courts have been really uh, explicit and very clear on that matter. For example, in 1993, in the case of R versus Hasselwender, um, there's a quote from the Supreme Court justice that says, Canadians, unlike Americans, do not have a constitutional right to bear arms. Now, this hasn't stopped some people from trying to claim a right to bear arms in Canada. Generally, there's sort of two avenues uh, through which people have tried to do that. Uh, the first is natural law. So natural law ties into the idea 
there are certain universal rights that that all human beings possess by virtue of being human, and that we can deduce those rights uh, through human reason. Um, and the argument here goes that since all societies recognize that at some level, uh, people have the right to protect themselves, you have the right to self-defense, um, that firearms operationalize this right. So how can you say that you enjoy the right to self-protection if you don't have access to the best tools to do that? So that's one argument that people have tried to make that the courts have not been very receptive to. And the second argument is through the legacy of the British Constitution. Um, so this dates back to the English Bill of Rights in 1688 after the Glorious Revolution, uh, which states that uh, the subjects, which are Protestants, may have arms for the defense suitable to their condition and as allowed by law. So this is actually the origin of the American Second Amendment. It dates back to this, this British law. Um, and it sort of came to the colonies through the legal commentaries of this, of this gentleman named Lord Blackstone. Um, and it was influential in Canada for a time. Interestingly, in early debates in Parliament over the issue of revolvers, which were causing a big problem in big cities uh, in Canada, uh, Johnny MacDonald actually makes reference to this right to bear arms. Um, however, the Canadian courts have not been receptive to this argument. This idea of a right to bear arms in Canada fell out of favor in the 19th century, um, and people really stopped referencing it after that. Excellent. I think that was a great overview so far, Noah, of like the tiers of classification of firearms in Canada. We talked about licensing. We talked about, you even talked about the process to get a license with mandatory courses, and we got a bit into the history there. I want to sort of segue into sort of the social identity aspect around firearms in Canada now as well, um, you know, so we can further paint the context picture before we start talking about other specifics as well. And I know you've done some specific work on this. So, you know, let's start with some general questions in this social identity pillar of conversation here. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, someone looking from the outside in, whether this is true or not, um, might feel that, for example, for many folks in the United States, you know, either being a firearms owner or uh, being for or against uh, firearms, certain firearms legislation or rights or, or what have you, sort of forms either one of or the core aspect of one sort of social political identity. Uh, I know you've done some work in this. So how, how central is, is the concept of and the idea and the politics behind firearms ownership to the feelings of people's identity in Canada. Often when you talk to folks on the international stage, we don't think of uh, Canada as, as, you know, as the top thing when you think of a Canadian, isn't people that argue over guns all the time. So, so what, where does the social sort of identity aspect of firearms in Canada look like for many people? Yeah, I think to a, a small but highly motivated group of Canadians, um, but significant group of Canadians, this is a really big issue. And firearms ownership really motivates them towards political action. I'll give you some background on, on how sort of I came to this. Um, so my most recent research project has been looking at uh, gun politics in Canada. It involved doing survey research on about 16,000. Canadian gun owners, and also interviews. So I've interviewed over 100 Canadian gun owners uh, for long Zoom interviews. And I've really gotten to uh, embedded myself and gotten to know the gun culture in Canada uh, quite intimately. Um, so I can say to the people I've spoke to and to the people that I surveyed, this issue is really important. Um, and as I said, there's 2.2 million people in Canada licensed to own firearms. Uh, now, in Canada, um, there are different groups of, of firearms owners. Uh, generally, uh, hunters, which make up the largest group, um, tend to be sort of the least politically motivated, usually because a lot of the guns that they use are the less controversial ones. We'll come back to this later when we talk about policy and Bill C-21. But for uh, several hundred thousand Canadians who are sports shooters, um, this can be really, really important as well, since their guns tend to be the ones on the chopping block when it comes to new, new legislation. 
people spend a lot of time and money uh, on the hobbies that are related to guns. So in my survey that I mentioned, an online survey of gun owners from 2019, the average gun owner in my survey spent over three grand in 2019 on gun-related supplies. So Mm -hmm. ammunition, firearms, uh, maybe trips to the shooting range, accessories, things like this. So that's a considerable amount of money to spend in a single year on a hobby. Um, In addition to that, something I learned about the gun community during my research is how central firearms are to a number of families and communities. Mm -hmm. It's really something... um, it's often presented in the media as something antisocial right. because of the relationship between guns and mass shootings, but it really is something social. And that's kind of strange uh, for someone like me who didn't grow up, you know, I grew up in a city. Right. Uh, I, I didn't grow up around guns. Um, I had I had participants, you know, when we were talking uh, about firearms that were connected to their family, to the core memories that they have, I had, I had people break down crying with me talking about these memories and about sort of how they, they felt about these things being taken away from them potentially. Uh, For many gun owners I talked to, it was part of their upbringing and their heritage. Uh, So, for example, one person I talked to, and now I should mention that that all the names I use for participants are pseudonyms. They're fake names, obviously, to protect their identities. But I talked to this one gentleman, uh, Rick, who I call Rick. Uh, He's a Métis hunter who grew up in Manitoba. And he talked about going on hunting trips with his family and what an important part uh, this was of his family upbringing and even his family's food system. Mm -hmm. I also spoke to Colleen. Um, she uh, talked about learning to shoot with her dad. Uh, so her dad, when she was a teenager, taught her and her sisters um, how to shoot. Uh, unfortunately, one of her sisters passed away recently and left behind a young daughter. And Colleen told me about uh, being able to take her niece to the range. Um, and her niece had been told stories about how important um, guns were to her mom and how how good she was at shooting. Um, and And she really enjoyed this opportunity to connect with something related to her mom's memory. Uh, for others, it's about community and recreation. So I spent, spoke with gun owners who were involved in the shooting sports, um, from sort of modern action sports that use semi-automatic handguns and rifles, to people who dress up as cowboys or fur traders uh, and compete in these historical competitions. Uh, so there's a really sort of um, a really uh, wide range of people who own guns in Canada for a lot of reasons, um, but I think what connects them is is their passion for for the social activities that guns allow them to take part in. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that makes a lot of sense. And I should say also, of course, full disclosure for the folks listening, I am myself a firearms owner and part of the community that no one's talking about. And I can definitely attest to and relate to sort of having an aspect of a social identity tied into guns, especially the community aspect and, and so on and so forth. So, so that makes a lot of sense. And I, I, did, I didn't want to leave this specific point of conversation as well, no, without specifically talking about also, of course, the significance of firearms for like, you know, folks, you know, the, the Aboriginal communities and First Nations, Métis and Inuit in Canada as well. I mean, they have not to say that the things that you just said don't apply to them, because of course that does. But it seems like on top of that, there's also an extra special and significant layer of what firearms means to these communities, both from a purely practical perspective and a historical perspective as well, from what I understand. No, certainly, um, especially for communities who rely on firearms and hunting as you know part of their food system, as part of the way that they feed their families. Um, in a lot of sort of remote indigenous communities, um, but also remote settler communities. Uh, hunting is a, is a big part of supplementing people's food system. And there's been a really interesting return as people start to learn more and more about things like factory farming. Um, I spoke to a number mm-hmm. of participants who, for them, eth- uh, hunting was part of their ethical practice and part of their their ethical meat eating, right? They, they, 
said, if I'm going to eat meat, um, I should be able to harvest my own meat. I should be able to go in the forest and hunt for myself right? Um, rather than sort of relying on, on this meat where, you know, I buy in the grocery store. I don't know where it comes from. I don't know the kind of life that that animal lived. Uh, so, yeah, for a lot of people, um, you know, firearms are about putting food on the table. And that's hugely important. Right. And often people and this is I left this. It sounds like a simple back to 101 question, but I did leave it to the end. And after this first train, I thought we were on as well to actually get all that context that you provided, which was great, because th- this issue is often framed as strictly uh, just a strong urban rule type split situation. Now, of course, based on the things, you know, you just said, it's clearly not just that type of thing. I don't think it's that simple. But is there also on top of all the things you're saying, a sort of urban rule split through line as well, that sort of divides people on this issue and ties their social identity to firearms? 100%. I like to say, um, you know, gun culture in Canada is tends to be rural and Western. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't gun owners in cities. Right. A lot of the people that I talked to lived in downtown Toronto uh, or in other sort of urban communities. Um, but for the most part, the, the lion's share of gun owners um, proportionally live in rural areas, and especially in the West, in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, the interior of British Columbia. Um, this is really the heart of Canadian gun culture, and it's where we've seen sort of the most resistance to a lot of the changes that the Trudeau government has tried to make. For example, the Alberta government being very, very aggressive at uh, advocating for the firearms owners in that province uh, against federal legislation. Yes, and shifting gears a little bit here as as we sort of are naturally treading towards us, I'm going to push us a little further into it, um, you know, into the more the policy area of guns now that we have all that backdrop uh, and uh, context that you greatly provided there. So when it comes to the issue of guns and guns control in Canada, when we enter sort of the uh, where the social sphere and all the things we've talked about really rubber meets the road in the political sphere and on this area where we can policy making and discussion that we can just call gun control, really, you know, tons of parties and political partisans call for evidence based policy making or something like that term on, on all sides, whether you know, one is against certain legislation a certain government's bringing in to uh, control firearms further or ban them or what have you, or whether one is for that type of legislation. Everyone's talking about, you know, we have to do this based on evidence and so on and so forth. A lot of us outside that debate, as and by outside, I don't mean not being a firearms owner, but like myself, I'm outside of it. I don't work on Parliament Hill. We can see a lot of the discussion is, in fact, emotion-based. But what does actual evidence say about guns and gun violence in Canada? Noah, let's start there and then I'll talk more about, you know, legislation and policy and ask you some questions. But let's start with what the evidence says about guns and gun violence in Canada first, if we want to use that as our one piece of evidence for this discussion to start. Yeah, evidence-based policy is a, a really good aspiration, um, but oftentimes it's used uh, maybe more as a framing technique uh, than necessarily a, a good description of a policy. Um, you can see all sides in this debate uh, really like the using the rhetoric of evidence-based policy. And whenever I hear someone say evidence-based policy, I always think, well, whose evidence? What <laughs> evidence are you drawing on? I think it's important to put on our critical thinking caps when we hear that term. Um, and I really like the way that you open the episode asking that question, does Canada have a gun problem? Because I think my reading of the evidence, and I've studied this issue for about five years fairly extensively, would be that we don't have a gun problem in Canada per se. We really have a gang and a border problem. 
So uh, the rise in gang in gun violence that people have been talking about happening in the past half decade has really, if you look at the statistics, it's been driven by gang and drug related crime in big cities. These folks are not licensed gun owners, nor are they diverting most of their firearms from the legal market. Um, there's really no good national data on smuggling, but the data that is available that's released uh, by certain provinces and by uh, municipal police forces shows that the overwhelming majority of guns showing up on crime scenes in Canada are coming from the U.S., and especially handguns, which tend to be the firearm of choice for a lot of criminal gang members. Obviously, they're easy to, to hide. Um, they're easier to smuggle. Uh, you can commit a crime with a handgun, put it away, and then sort of slip back into the crowd, which you cannot do with a long gun. Um, and, and handguns are really useful tools uh, for people who are involved in the criminal drug trade or involved in criminal gangs. Um, this sort of makes sense that they would be sourcing their guns from the U.S., right? We know, looking at firearms policy, that guns tend to flow from areas of high regulation, of low regulation, sorry, to areas of high regulation. Um, it's it's fairly easy to buy a, a handgun in many U.S. states. It's fairly cheap, and you can sell them in Canada for quite a bit of money. There's, uh, you know, a very a lot of money to be made smuggling handguns across the border. We share the world's largest undefended border with the country that has the most guns in the hands of civilians in the world. Uh, so it makes sense that um, we would have that illegal flow of handguns. Uh, just to give you some more, like a bit more of a breakdown on that data, um, Ontario is the only province that has a comprehensive tracing program. The rest of the Canada only tra rest of Canada only traces about six to ten percent of guns, but Ontario's program is really comprehensive. And they found that 79% of guns showing up at crime scenes in Ontario are coming from the United States. So th these are big numbers. And and, and um, you've already said it, but I just want to clarify, especially for those who aren't familiar with this issue. Like, it's not that they're just coming from the United States in these statistics. We're not talking about le legally importing an export discussion here. We're talking about being smuggled in and, you know, unlicensed people most of the time are using, for instance, handguns from the United States to commit crimes. That's a really good point. Yes. Yeah. So they're either being smuggled by by third parties. So these are sort of professional smugglers who make their money getting stuff across the border. Uh, generally, you know, you think about how long we, we've been fighting the, the war on drugs um, and yet drugs still flow into Canada from other places. Right. You can smuggle drugs somewhere. You can smuggle guns, especially handguns. Right. They don't take up that much space. Um Another example, too, uh, that might make this more concrete, if we look at the shooting that happened in Nova Scotia, the mass shooting uh, in port a uh, in 2020, um, the mass shooter sourced most of his firearms from the United States. So this was a case of him traveling directly himself uh, to Maine uh, in the United States um, and, and bringing back uh, the, the semi-automatic long arms that he used uh, to commit that horrible atrocity. Um, so... Really, you know, it's unfortunately quite easy for people uh, to bring these guns across the border. Um, just in your own life as a listener, you can think of how many times you've probably crossed the U.S.-Canadian border and how many times you've been stopped in search, right? Right. It's really hard to secure such a massive land border uh, against, uh, you know, the flow of illegal firearms, especially since firearm smugglers, uh, they're very crafty. They have a lot of different ways using drones, GPS trackers on cars a lot of different technology to get these firearms across the border. So on the one hand, we have a border problem, and I think there's kind of limits to what we can do. On the other hand, I think we have to look at, at the gang and, and drug problem um, as really the uh, demand size issues side issue. 
So we look at firearms policy a lot through the lens of supply. How can we control the supply supply of handguns that are getting onto the illegal market or the supply of firearms getting onto the illegal market? I mean, I think where the most bang for our buck lies, if you'll, you know, pardon that terrible pun, <laughs> right. is looking at the demand. So why are Canadians, especially young men, if you look at the statistics, and especially young men from marginalized communities picking up a gun in the first place? Why are they joining criminal gangs? And I think this is really where a lot of, uh, where we need to target our intervention on this policy issue um, is trying to divert young people from criminal gangs, trying to give these young people a stake in society, the feeling that they can achieve what they want, which is, you know, a good life for themselves, wealth, some measure of wealth, status through the legitimate system, that they don't have to turn to the illegitimate market to be able to achieve these things. Um, and there's evidence-based, uh, community-based programs uh, from uh, that have been used around the world that show a lot of promise that I think we could be spending a lot more money on. Great. And I think that's actually an excellent place to take our break. So we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Noah Schwartz today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Andy Crooks, Elizabeth Aragona, and Vincent Geloso. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to the Curious Task. I'm speaking with Noah Schwartz today. So, Noah, I think the first task was great uh, on this issue. We were talking about um, a lot of context for uh, how guns are managed in Canada by the states. We talked about licensing of gun owners. We talked about social identity. And just towards the end of the first half, we were talking about ultimately what in your reading and your research and studying is, is if there is a gun violence problem in, in uh, Canada, where is it coming from? And we were just finishing off the train of thought about you talking about illegal guns, gun smuggling, uh, gangs, and so on and so forth, and um, how, how basically illegal guns are statistically the significant aspect of gun violence in Canada. And that's a lot about the guns themselves. I just want to cap off that thought as we begin our first half here, our second half, I should say, into... Um, you know, this question here, which is obviously we were talking about a lot of unlicensed gun owners and unlicensed guns, if you will, if we're talking about gangs of people um, and, and so on and so forth, smuggling guns. But just to cap off that point so we don't miss it, um, what's the stats and what's the evidence look like on whether licensed gun owners significantly or if at all uh, represent themselves in gun violence stats? Is it is it small? Is it large? Is it non-existent? As far as licensed gun owners, gun owners, people who have actually registered themselves with the government for their possession and acquisition license, as you described in the first half, how where do the chips fall for them when it comes to gun violence stats? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, there's not a lot of good data available on this, unfortunately. Uh, the government has all of this data at their disposal, but for, they don't uh, they don't like to release it too much. Um, data that's been done by independent uh, researchers like Gary Mauser um, at uh, SFU um, has shown that on uh, on the whole, um, gun uh, people with gun licenses are actually much less likely 
to commit crimes than the average Canadian. And this makes sense because if, if you have a gun license, it means that the RCMP has looked through your background. Um, generally, when, when it comes to crime, you know, homicide is not someone's first step on a criminal journey. Usually there's a lot of incidents that precede it. We can look once again at the Nova Scotia shooter um, who had, you know, multiple, he, he was sort of known to police. There were multiple incidents in the past of, of violence and aggression in his history that um, in retrospect um, show an escalation towards mass violence. For the most part, people don't just, you know, uh, Law-abiding, normal people don't usually commit acts of violence out of nowhere. There's a history before that. And the more that that history is exposed to scrutiny, um, the more likely it is that, that those people will be identified and, and not allowed to own firearms. That's really the advantage of Canada's licensing system, is that, is that instead of you know having a single background check at point of purchase, like in the U.S., um, the police are really able to scrutinize someone's history when deciding whether they should or should not be allowed to own firearms. So generally, um, you know, uh, PAL holders uh, are, are less likely to commit these crimes uh, than uh, the average Canadian uh, as a result of that. Right. That makes sense. Because, I mean, I can even personally attest to the fact that, you know, that having gone through it and, and getting my pal that like, you know, obviously I was remarking to myself when I was going through that process, like this is like the biggest disincentive uh, to, to, you know, the way you legally purchase a gun in Canada or become a legal firearm owner. Like that's like the biggest disincentive. And uh, as far as like a pathway to crime, I mean, like you said, the, now you have to go through, you have to sit there at a course, then there's a 28 day waiting period, then you get your license, then you got to, it's like, you know, a quick way to commit a crime is not the licensing route in Canada to say the least, right? Certainly. And I should say, I, in my survey data, and something that came across in talking with people, is uh, licensed gun owners have a lot of pride in, in the licensing, like having gone mm -hmm. through the licensing process. Yes, For many, uh, it's sort of held up as kind of a badge of honor in the community. And there's a lot of support uh, within the community for the licensing process. Because if you're standing there at a gun range next to someone, um, and I've done this as, you know, uh, in the course of my research, I, I've shot at gun ranges in both the United States and Canada. And I have to say, I felt a lot more comfortable in Canada where I knew that everyone at that range uh, either, you know, had been through the training program or was immediately supervised by someone who had been through the training program. So it, it does create sort of a, a bond, a sense of trust within the community as well. Yes, for sure. I can attest to that as well. Um, so now, actually, let's cap off that thought because that did go many directions. I mean that in a good way. So, you know, we started that larger train of thought and split a break in the middle of it. But but at the end of the day, you know, we sort of started this whole train of thought as the evidence-based policy direction. We, we talked about a lot of things, but you did ultimately start this train of thought with this idea of you know, whether Canada has a gun violence problem and you sort of allude to the fact it's more of a guns and gangs problem. So to close off this sort of pillar of conversation, if you will, if the government is going to focus on curbing gun violence in Canada and actually address that type of crime, um, from a pure evidence-based perspective, in your opinion, if we're not tweaking and messing with gun laws for licensed gun owners, because ultimately those are the people who are going to just quite literally be affected by gun regulation, what are the kinds of things that could and or should be done in your view to curb gun violence? Yeah, so I think uh, community-based programs um, that intervene uh, with people who are at risk of, of joining a gang or that intervene to de-escalate conflicts between criminal gangs. Uh, for example, the Cure Violence model has been used really successfully in a number of American cities. Um, and it involves direct intervention in, in uh, gang conflicts and trying to remove people um, and disincentivize people from participating 
in that lifestyle. Um, there's a lot of also really innovative policing techniques that are being used. Uh, for example, programs that try to bar gang members from accessing, being able to access restaurants and things like that. So putting them on on the ban list for restaurants um, and, and, you know, being a, a gang member may lose some of its allure if suddenly you're not able to go to the trendy nightclub that you want to go to, that you now have money to go to. Um, so there's a lot of, a lot of, uh, Policing and the non-policing programs, especially, that can be used uh, to to de-escalate these situations, to get people out of the gang lifestyle, and to give them um, an opportunity, like I said, to be able to succeed in in you know normal society through the legitimate market, rather than turning to the illicit market to achieve what they want to achieve. Right. Now I'd like to, for the last swing of our conversation, really get uh, into a bit like of current legislation and the current things that are happening on the uh, in the political sphere as far as guns and just, you know, uh, just full disclosure and disclaimer for those listening, you know, from the Institute for Liberal Studies perspective, we're exploring legislation for educational purposes to talk about what's happening, uh, whether or not something should be passed or not as far as policy recommendations. Our guests might comment on that, but that's not our job at all. So getting into that, Noah, can you get bring us up to speed on current political and legislative debate on guns right now you know there's bill c21 which everyone's talking about as far as like you know sort of this omnibus legislation that does many things um what of course we can't go through every page of legislation and i just want to say i'm not putting you on the spot for that but at a high level what are the types of things as far as gun control that are on the table right now um in parliament that are being discussed debated and so on yeah i think uh, let's start the conversation um so We've seen looking at the policy, right, that there isn't a huge necessarily reason to update Canada's gun laws from what they were in the 1990s. Uh, They've been working quite well since then, Um, which then leads to the question. So why has there been so much action on this policy issue recently? Um, The problem with gun policy today is that both of Canada's major political parties have really lucrative partisan uh, incentives right, to be able to to make this a political issue, right? I'm a political scientist. Political scientists, we always look at incentives. Why would someone do something? Um, and, and we saw uh, in the 1990s, there was almost a bipartisan consensus around gun policy. The, the PAL, the licensing system in Canada, was brought in by a progressive conservative government, right? This wasn't sort of the divisive political issue that it is today. Um, what we saw uh, first under the Harper government, which was really successful at using the long gun registry as a wedge issue, Suddenly, um, the parties realized, I think, that this is a really potent issue to stir up their base, uh, to encourage donations and things like that. So we saw it sort of start under Harper, but Trudeau has really kind of taken it to the next level. Um, so I think the, uh, some of the most recent changes, right, in 2020, after that, uh, the mass shooting in Nova Scotia, Trudeau makes good on his campaign progress to ban what he labels assault-style weapons, um, and there's some controversy there over whether the RCMP commissioner, Brenda Lucky, right, was pressured to release info on guns used uh, during the crime, even though the RCMP was still investigating this. Um, so this uh, bans about 1,500 different models of firearms. In October of 2022, after the Uvalde shooting in the United States, the government uses this as a focusing event, as an opportunity to announce their freeze on handguns through regulation. And then more recently, there's been the controversial Bill C-21, which tries to take the the assault-style weapon ban, take the handgun freeze, and put it into legislation so that it's a lot harder for the next government to change, uh, as well as um, changing a few other laws as well. Uh, This has been really contentious because of two amendments uh, that the government tried to add to the bill during committee that would have greatly expanded the scope of the assault-style weapon ban. 
um, to include uh, many firearms commonly used by hunters, including Indigenous hunters. There was a lot of pushback. The Assembly of First Nations uh, created an emergency resolution and passed it on the subject. Uh, Carrie Price, uh, the Montreal Canadiens goaltender speaking or former goaltender speaking out about this. Um, and, and that backlash caused them to withdraw the amendments. Uh, but Bill C-21 Bill C is still being discussed and debated right now in Parliament. Right. And that, that excellent overview. So I'd like to push into a couple of different things because each is a pillar of sort of um, debate and, you know, conundrum unto itself uh, in, in many ways. So you mentioned assault style. Uh, let's dive into that a little further. So you mentioned like, you know, for instance, one of the things on this current government's agenda is to de- define and ultimately then ban um, a, what they are view and will will hope to define as a, as assault style weapons. Um, whether one agrees with that or not. Uh, this is proving to be a bit of a difficult task. So why is this specifically becoming a bit of a difficulty? I mean, again, no matter what side of this debate you're on, um, I think all sides would basically say, especially from what they've seen in committee and in legislation, that defining this and actually being able to legislate it is proving to be a little more difficult than, hey, quote unquote, assault style weapons are banned. So why is this so difficult? Yeah, the term uh, assault-style weapon is extremely contentious in this debate. Um, it it goes back quite a bit if we want to look at the history of the term. Uh, so the term uh, assault weapon um, actually comes out of the 1940s. Uh, the Germans create a, a new type of rifle. It's called the Sturmgewehr, um, and it is uh, a rifle um, chambered in an in a intermediate cartridge. So it's not quite as powerful as the cartridges that a lot of the countries are using back then or a lot of hunting cartridges. Um, and it's able to shoot uh, in both semi and fully automatic form. So this is the military definition of an assault style weapon. A firearm, it can shoot both semi-automatic. So one pull of the trigger fires one shot and in a fully automatic fa- fashion. So holding down the trigger uh, will fire um, bullets until the, the magazine is exhausted, essentially, or the person lets go. This term is then taken, it's first used um, by uh, gun manufacturers in advertising right? Um, it, it's it's sort of a trendy advertising term, assault weapon. Um, and then it's picked up by gun control advocates in the United States in the 1990s. And these advocates uh, are really frustrated at the lack of progress in regulating handguns in the U.S. If you dig into the FBI statistics on gun crime in, in America, um, it is mind-blowing. It is shocking how many gun crimes in the United States are committed with handguns versus long guns. It's, right. it's by an order of magnitude larger. So these advocates are really frustrated. They're not able to regulate handguns, um, but they look at these assault weapons being advertised and they say, hey, this is a really, uh, it could be a useful term, a useful framing for us to use. Um, and we actually have like uh, policy documents where they say this explicitly. Um, this could be a good way to confuse the public because the public won't know that these aren't fully automatic weapons. So this term kind of enters the lexicon of, of gun control advocacy, um, and it's picked up uh, by uh, Justin Trudeau's government um, in 2019. Uh, they first start saying they want to ban military-style assault weapons. And after consultation, um, they sort of change it to assault-style weapons. Now, anytime style is kind of tacked on the back of something, it's kind of a good inv- indication that you know, it, it's not uh, a very robust definition around this. And the government really didn't um, present a definition of it. I like to say it's like the the classic uh, debate around defining pornography, right, right, from the United States in the 1960s. Justice Potter is asked to define pornography for this case. And he says, I don't know what it, uh, I don't know how to define pornography, but I know it when I see it. 
And that was kind of the approach that the government was taking to in the 2020 ban to assault-style weapons. Uh, generally, these were firearms that had been used in high-profile in- incidents, semi-automatic guns, um, and the government identified them as bad guns that they wanted to ban. Where they got into trouble with C-21 is that they they took a lot of flack for this and they decided, okay, um, we really want a evergreen definition of an assault-style weapon. And there was a lot of push from pro-control groups like Police Souvien, like Coalition for Gun Control, uh, for them to do this. Um, the problem with that is that the definition that used, which is a firearm, a semi-automatic firearm capable of accepting removable magazines, then touches on a lot of guns that are commonly used for hunting. Um, and this sort of caused that backlash and uproar that we heard. Right. Sorry, that was a bit of a long answer, but it's a complicated technical issue. Oh, no, for sure. And I, I think one of the keys there, because, of course, you know, we don't have the hours of committee time that some of these other folks do to get into everything. But I think you touched on a couple times. One of the key issues there is that, you know, on the one hand, you know, you mentioned a couple things like uh, fully automatic, semi-automatic and so on. Um, basically, the action of the gun, how it works. And, uh, you know, you know and, and there's, you know, there's basically pistols uh, or handguns. There's long guns. You know, we could talk in long guns. We could talk about shotguns. We could talk rifles. We could talk semi-automatic, automatic, lever action. We could talk about all this stuff um, just as you did, too. But I guess to round off this thought, you're sort of getting at the point that when you get to this idea of like assault style, then you're tasking yourself if you're the government basically of basically identifying what that is because some people might from a hollywood movie perspective think of an image when they hear an assault weapon or assault style weapon but unfortunately at that point you only have a term to use you don't really have a definition so i guess that's really the problem is the government tasked itself uh with the uh with basically defining what an assault style weapon is and then of course the that's debatable. I guess that's essentially what what the mess uh, seemed to come from, at least from what I understood from what you were saying. Certainly, and, and they're not the first government to fall afoul of this, right? The, the um, under Clinton, the U.S. government banned assault uh, weapons in 1995. Their approach was essentially semi-automatic guns uh, that had sort of a laundry list of features. Um, many of these just kind of cosmetic features, like a handguard, things like this. Um, even a, a, a attachment for bayonets, um, which you know doesn't seem to be a major factor in in, in gun crime uh, from where I look at it. Um, and that, you know, there were a number of assessments done on the assault weapons ban at sunset in 2004. Um, and, and in the literature, there's really no support for these assault style, we- uh, assault style weapon bans or assault weapons bans having any influence uh, on criminal gun violence at all. Um, there's no one's been able to show a relationship uh, between the two. So a lot of this is politics and, and that technical nature of the debate is really what makes lends the issue so well to this politicking, right? Because uh, it takes uh, you know us an hour to explain some of the technical nations, and even then we're not going to get through everything. Right. But it takes thirty seconds for Justin Trudeau to stand at a podium um, with a scary looking gun, or it takes thirty seconds for for Pierre Polyev to say they're coming after Grandpa Joe's hunting rifle. Right. Right. Um, and and the public, you know, you start to talk about technical things, they they tune out quite quickly. Um, so it, it is really hard to, to kind of get to the truth of this matter and to cut through those politics. Yeah, indeed. And, and you know, just, you know, pushing further into that, you're also oftentimes, you know, 
and, and I'm and I'm not saying this in a mean way at all. Actually, it's just a, 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 it seems to be something that just happens in a system like this. You know, you have people that are technical experts in firearms, like people at you know, for example, the RCMP firearms program, the people that are supposed to be regulating and assessing these sorts of things, and you have gun owners themselves who, to varying degrees, need to be to some degree a technical expert on what they're handling, and then you have people uh, in Parliament that are being tasked, uh, you know, to legislate and think about this stuff that might not necessarily be technical experts so like you know between that and trying to define things it sort of ends up being what seems to be an emotional based political issue if anything uh you know rather than you know the bunch of technical technical experts getting together uh, and, and trying to figure out how to regulate this stuff so i think that it seems like that's where a lot of the heat on the issue comes from as well right is also the people that are actually trying to legislate this stuff whether or not they're saying the right things 100%. It was a real wake-up call for me as I started researching this issue, how little the people talking about it the most actually knew about it. Right. Um, it was it was honestly quite frightening. And sometimes you'll see uh, the government kind of make statements. After the controversy on Bill C-21, for example, uh, the government brings out one of their rural MPs uh, to start talking about firearms. And the first thing that they say, um, you know, very quickly shows that they they are not the firearms expert that the government is sort of presenting them as. Um, so it's 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 very deeply troubling and and it it leads to a situation where we're creating policy based on, you know, political motivations rather than the motivation that should be guiding this, which is, you know, public safety. Right. And back to that, so tying this all back to the social identity discussion, too. I mean, like at, at the end of the day, and of course, I'm going to go through a couple of thoughts here and toss it over to you for your thoughts, of course, with please, of course, correct me if I'm wrong as I build this, but like at the end of the day, everything we just talked about is ultimately going to affect licensed gun owners if you change the kind, because what the government's effectively doing um, when it regulates and goes through gun control policy, if it's banning things or changing the classification things of, of things, it's shifting what can and cannot be legally owned. So ultimately what you're doing is you are adjusting what a, a, a legal firearms owner can do um, so with, with that in mind, when we couple the social identity aspect into this whole thing and how some people are very passionate about firearms, is it not true that when the, when any government, whatever party is kind of steps into an issue like this, they're also sort of risking creating a bunch of social tension around this kind of stuff where instead of talking about quote unquote criminals and gangs, for instance, in Toronto, now we're talking about whether, you know, an honest person in Toronto who is against gun violence, obviously, and might not want so-and-so to have such-and-such such weapons. They're, they're now thinking of licensed gun owners as potentially the problematic people socially, as opposed to, you know, you know, gangs and gang violence. If, if you see what I'm trying to say, like, this is also another hot button on the issue is what I'm trying to say is where a lot of this attention is necessarily on licensed gun owners now because that's what's being regulated in many cases, not, not elsewhere. So it, it can it cannot do anything but sometimes create some social division. C certainly. And this is where it's really hard to get the attention of the public and where I think we need to to start talking about it is the harms that come from these policies. Because it's very easy uh, to say, well, you know, okay, uh, for someone, you know, in a big city who doesn't know anything about guns uh, other than what they see in the news about the U.S., they don't necessarily like guns. And they say, okay, well, most guns are coming from the U.S., but who cares if we ban handguns? It can't hurt, right? Um, and the reality is the harms that come from these policies um, don't necessarily get widely publicized. Um, the harms uh, not only to individuals, right, who have invested huge sums of money, as I showed, into these hobbies that they're really passionate about, 
uh, but also to the communities that form around these things, right? To have a handgun in Canada, you have to be a member of a range. You have to be involved in the shooting sports. There are communities that are are, are created around these sports uh, that are going to be destroyed by these legislative changes. Um, and, and once again, going back to that idea of, of people, the people regulating this not necessarily being experts, oftentimes these policies are drawn with an incredibly broad brush, right? The ban on handguns doesn't just impact, you know, Glocks, which are, you know, the preferred uh, handgun of, of, you know, many gang members, right? Right. Um, they are also going to impact things like uh, cowboy pistols single action cowboy revolvers that are used by cowboy action shooters. They're going to affect, um, you know, uh, uh, muzzle loading handguns, right? Jack Sparrow's pistol from Pirates of the Caribbean, his little single shot pistol is being banned by this legislation. And I just don't see, uh, you know, uh, criminals in in big cities shooting each other with muzzle loading muskets and and things (laughs) like that, that are going to be affected. I mean, it it sounds silly until you talk to the people like I did, who are actually being affected like this and who are breaking down in tears because their family heirloom um, is now going to go into the smelter or or they won't be able to pass it on right after they pass away they'll have to give it to the government um, there, there, there's real harm here and beyond just the harm to those people in those communities there's the lack of faith in the system that i hear a lot of people talking about we're living in an age where people are are starting to question democratic institutions right and when you take several hundred thousand canadians and tell them that the property that you've gone jumped through hoops to be able to own that you've paid a lot of money to be able to own and that um you know, you you use uh, peacefully and safely. Um, we're going to take that from you because we don't consider you responsible anymore. That harms faith in the system, especially when they can see that this is being motivated by political reasons, not necessarily public safety. Right. So there's real danger here that I don't think gets talked about enough in our public discussion um, or in, in conversations about this. Right. And and uh, just to clarify one technical point as well from the, that evidence-based policy perspective, because of course everyone says they want to make policy based on evidence, but you know, you're talking about, again, like, like, you know, banning handguns could have all these harms. And I totally agree with that as well. But, you know, again, from my understanding from the stats are there is not a problem of legal handguns being legally imported into Canada and legally owned by people somehow tumbling into the hands of criminals. Like, I'm not saying it never happens, but I'm saying that doesn't seem to be an epidemic at this point in time. That's correct. We're talking about a very, very small segment of the illegal market that'll be eliminated by this. And it will largely uh, be filled, right? We know the laws of supply and demand. If there's a strong demand for these things, and it's clear that uh, the border is an insufficient barrier to stop them, um, there's, you know, nothing indicates to me that 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 supply won't be filled by just importing more illegal handguns from the U.S. Right. And one last question here before we move to our formal wrap. I mean, you, t- you talked about sort of as well the costs and the harms that can come from these types of policies and the way certain politicians and parties approach guns and stuff like that. That's cost, but as well, it seems to me at least from a like a like from a nonpartisan, non-party perspective, just from a pure social commentary perspective, it seems that for various reasons, it's even that there's a loss of an opportunity here for largely speaking from my personal experience uh, which is one thing it's not everything and also from reading things from people like you and and that research this stuff is that there seems to always be this missed opportunity unfortunately when things transfer to the political sphere of actually having for lack of a better term um, two groups on the quote same side which are on the one hand uh, licensed gun owners and on the other hand those genuinely concerned about gun violence because I find at least when you actually rip away a lot of 
some of the surface and window dressing that they are often both these groups are often very passionate against the topic of, of, of gun violence and they want to seek solutions for that. Obviously gun owners don't think a solution is having their legal guns taken away. I mean, that that's just, you know, a given, but having said that, you know, so sometimes I guess what I'm trying to get at is what to me, to, to many people sometimes appears to be a division between legal gun owners and those for gun control uh, is actually not that much of a division at all. There's actually a lot of commonalities underneath. So I think that's also a missed opportunity as well, just from a pure social perspective. It's unfortunate there's that division, at least from what I've seen. Certainly, we're creating polarization where polarization doesn't necessarily exist. And we're kind of uncritically adopting this American frame around the gun debate and just imposing it on Canada. Because once again, most people don't really follow this debate very closely. And you're right, I think it is a missed opportunity. Um, I think there's, like I said, there's broad, uh, there's widespread consensus around Canada's licensing system, around safe storage laws, um, around, you know, uh, a lot of the restrictions that Canada has in place. Um, and and this is really an opportunity where we could bring people together instead of tearing them apart. But uh, once again, that's not where the political incentives lie. Right. And with that, Noah, our time is pretty much wound down here. So I'm going to push us to our formal wrap up. Uh, in each episode, I want to make sure the guest ultimately has the, the last word to try and bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the the episode and conversations question. So, so let me now ask you the official last question, if you will. What do you hope are ultimately the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on whether Canada really has a gun problem? Um, in other words, if you wanted someone listening to us here today to take away from our chat one, two, or just a few things, if anything, what would you want them to take away? Yeah, I think I would ask them to uh, really do their own research on this issue. Don't trust my word. Um uh, don't trust the word of necessarily the people that you hear uh, on the news. Go and do your own research. Look into it. See, uh, explore the data and, and see where that takes you. Um, and if that maybe challenges some of the, the uh, you know, preconceived notions that you had about the gun debate. And I would also, you know, challenge people to to follow this issue uh, a little bit closer and, and to, uh, you know, have their voices about this. We are very, very lucky uh, to live in a strong democratic system um, and uh we have the ability to make our voice heard through writing letters to our MP, through, you know, commenting on issues on social media. Uh, there's lots of ways uh, to do that. So number one, as I always tell my students, do your own research. Don't take anyone's word for it. Um, put on your critical thinking caps uh, and and really dig into this issue because I, I think it is an important one. Great. Noah Schwartz, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thanks so much for having me. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. The Curious Task.